Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you're like me, money can be tight. I'm not rolling in it and yes, that's probably why I've got long hair. Save money wherever you can, right? So when it comes to binoculars, money is one of the restrictions. I don't always have the total amount up front and I could probably just pay it in dribs and drabs. Well, that's where Leica helped me. Leica have created a new way to shop. Introducing a 0% APR and a 9.9% APR on a large selection of items. Available online, this new program guarantees peace of mind when purchasing your bit of Leica kit. You even get to pick the right financing plan for you. You can read more about this program on the Leica Online Store UK. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks so much for clicking play on the pod. My gosh, the weather's been beautiful. I hope you've all been enjoying it. I have only been sunburned once, which, considering I am ginger, I think is an absolute result. Thank you very much. To be fair, I have been bathing in Factor 50 sun cream, but we don't tell people that. Apart from that, I've just been enjoying the sun, walking the dogs, enjoying some nature, seeing the bees in the garden. Saw my first cinnabar moth today. Oh, things are getting brilliant, people. Nature is hitting its absolute peak. And as I record this, today on the 10th of June, the G7 Summit is happening tomorrow in Cornwall. Well, it starts tomorrow. I think it starts tomorrow. It might have even started today, sorry. But it started, as you're listening now, last week. And gatherings of the world's richest world leaders are meeting to make several promises of which um, they will be talking a lot about the climate the climate crisis the biodiversity crisis and protecting the world from going boom in a big red ball of flames and our world leader in england our world leader the the blonde the the you know what I'll get political. The buffoon that we call Boris Johnson decided the best way to travel to a summit where he will talk a lot about climate change and emissions and being greener. He thought the best way to do that was to take a plane from London 260 miles to Cornwall. I mean, okay, let's say a few things on this. One... Of course he got a plane. Of course he flew there. He's the Prime Minister. He's not going to get on a national rail train. He's not going to sit on economy or even first class with a bunch of football Euro 2021 heads next to him. That's not going to happen. And he can't drive there because he'll get stuck in traffic because everyone's going to go away for the weekend because it's sunny. So of course he's going to fly. But you'd think someone, someone would have said, Boris, mate, Maybe don't get a picture in front of the plane. Maybe get a picture when you're on the beach. Maybe go to the beach with a pint in your hand and say, I've arrived in Cornwall, looking forward to changing the world. That would have been way better. Who is his PR? Who is running that man's social media to think we're talking about climate change and lowering emissions and being greener? Stand in front of that planet-killing aviator machine. (laughs) Planet-killing aviator machine. I never did get that job at Ryanair. It was just madness. It was just madness. Anyway, sorry about the rant. We need some positivity. I tell you what, it's time for 60 Second Nature News. I've got four more stories for you that will lift your spirits because good things are happening out there. So are you ready? Let's take a deep breath. Let's go into 60 Second Nature News. 
Researchers have discovered a secret population of speckled bears in a remnant of endangered forests in the highlands of Bolivia. The forest is one of the last surviving patches of highly imperiled inter-Andean dry forest. While the speckled bear population is small and has many threats, researchers say they hope to connect it with other populations. Cornwall Wildlife Trust and Natural England have secured an initial £700,000 funding from the government for a G7 nature legacy project. This project aims to knit together the precious habitats across the region as part of England's nature recovery plan. The G7 Nature Recovery Project plans to connect nature reserves, sites of special scientific interest, the Cornwall area of outstanding beauty, the Cornwall Mining World Heritage, the coast and the foul estuary across the China Clay Pits to the World Heritage Site at the Luzilian Valley. The project, expected to take five years depending on future funding, will deliver for nature, climate and for people and will deliver to the UK's target to protect and improve 30% of land for nature by 2030. Elin Wildlife Group in London wrote in to say that they are delighted to announce that they have had a total of 10 owl chicks hatch in their urban owl nest box scheme, a joint scheme managed by park rangers in Elin and sponsored by Tesco. And finally, the international conservation organisation African Parks has been awarded 108 million US dollars in funding to manage its national parks in Africa. The funds are provided by the Washington-based Weiss Foundation in the USA. This funding will support up to half the annual budgets of nine existing national parks under its management in Angola, Benin, Malawi, Mozambique, Rwanda and Zimbabwe. That's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Okay, we are done. That was, um, that was... Again, these are hard. I struggle with them. And just for an insight, I did that 60 Second Nature News live on Instagram. Check me out. Um, of course, it didn't take 60 seconds. It didn't take two minutes. It took 13 minutes. 13 minutes that took to record. Me kept stumbling. That's that's where I appreciate my editor, Oscar, more than anything on the planet. Apart from my girlfriend, Christina. I have to say that because she listens to the show. Big up you, Christina. <laughs> Right, today's show, what are we talking about? Uh, today, I spoke to James Harding-Morris from Back to the Brink, an organisation which is managing several conservational projects under one umbrella. It's kind of saying, you know what, there's loads of organisations out here focusing on one thing. Let's bring them all together to benefit everything. We're all after one goal, and that is to increase biodiversity, to help nature and nature uh, recovery, really. And this is exactly what Back to the Brink does. And it was fascinating to talk to James, to tell him the idea behind this organisation, what its aims are, what its plans for the future, some of James's favourite projects that are going on at the moment at the organisation. It was just a really positive, lovely chat. And I think, honestly, collaboration is the way forward with pretty much everything that's going on on the planet. And it is lovely to hear that there is someone or a group of people out there that are doing that for nature. So, ladies and gentlemen... This episode is called Bringing Nature Back with Back from the Brink. James, welcome to Into the Wild. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a lovely sunny evening in Yorkshire. I know. I, I, that's handy because I didn't know whereabouts in the UK were, so you're in Yorkshire. How's the temperatures up north? Uh, cold at the moment, but, <laughs> you know, the sun's good. If we get out and bask like a lizard, you're all right. <laughs> It's a very reptilian time of year, isn't it? It's like it's nice if you lay in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then, and then like so, uh, you know, cloud goes over the sun, or you walk into the shade, and you wish you were wearing two jumpers. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I don't want to show off, but London's been very nice. Um, but you probably have way more wildlife. So I always say London gets the heat, but you get the nature. <laughs> Absolutely. But with that London heat island effect, you probably get some really weird stuff active early in the year or some weird non-native yeah. species and stuff like That's that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we do we do get a lot of very cool city, like wildflower comes out everywhere because it's very warm and it flowers quite early on. So that's that's one thing I notice. The blossoms out a bit earlier. Yeah, so it's, 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 it swings roundabouts. I think no matter it's... where you live, there's yeah. there's always something good. We should get that on a t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> I've always wondered because, um, like, I always think I don't know if you've ever thought like this. When you think about like the counties of the UK, there are some that kind of stand yeah. out to you as being the wildlife counties. You know, uh, Norfolk, Suffolk, Dorset, mm. Devon, Cornwall. Yeah. You, you know, Yorkshire, and there's always a few like Worcestershire. I'm like. What's Worcestershire's big pull, you know, in the wildlife? I'm sure there's something, because that's the thing. Every yeah. county has something. It's just uh, working out what it What's is. What's it known for? Yeah. yeah, that's true. It's like, but it's, it'd be brilliant if they were just known for something really obscure. Do you know what I mean? Like, that no one really talks about. Do you know, well, Berkshire's great for ants. Like, that's it, is it? <laughs> It's probably true. I think it's probably actually, true. Yeah. In fact, now I'm thinking about it, I, I, I have this strange feeling that the land caddis fly might be restricted to Worcestershire. <laughs> Well, there we go. Caddis flies, that's where they're at. Yeah, yeah. The t- a terrestrial caddis fly, yeah. <laughs> People flock there in their tens <laughs> each year. To sift through leaf litter. <laughs> Every year the Worcester, Worcester canal paths are just absolutely flooded <laughs> with um, caddis fly lovers. Um, anyway, <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you on the show. Should we start at the first question that we always ask on Into the Wild is, can you start by telling us who you are and what is it you do, James? Yes, I'm James Harding Morris and I am the Communications and Engagement Manager for a project called Back from the Brink, uh, which is a very fancy way of saying that my job is to tell people about what we do and try and get them to appreciate it. That's a cool job. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty much the best job. <laughs> Are you contracted to say that? <laughs> <laughs> like, don't forget to say it's the best yeah, job, Yeah, there's, there's, there's somebody Must here ready to hit me if I say anything else. <laughs> yeah, holding up a bit of cardboard. <laughs> okay, that's really cool. So I, get, I, I actually hadn't added this question in the email, but it is a question we always ask every guest, is you must obviously be a nature lover, you must be a wildlife lover. How did your journey from that begin for you? Where did your love for animals, wildlife and nature begin? That's a really, really good question. And I I think as a kid, I remember being really interested in butterflies and and snails in the garden. You know, if it was Mm. kind of a cold, damp day, go look for snails, you know, try and try and find one of those yellow ones with stripes, which I now know is sepia nemoralis or hortensis but at the time i was just like they're the rare ones the yellow ones um and then if it was you know if it was summer it was it was looking at butterflies in the budley or in the vegetable garden and just trying to sort of see as many different types as i could and probably the the big moment for me was being invited to a moth night when i was 11 or 12 years old um, amazing and, and just seeing you know because like i was really into butterflies and i'd probably seen maybe a dozen species come through the garden maybe even not that many and then in one night to see this variety of shape and color and form of something like a butterfly but just so much more profuse i think just yeah and i've just been obsessed with moths ever since and that's kind of been my mm. gateway species to you know getting into birding getting into botany 
getting to a bit of everything really that's really cool i i i really got into butterfly this year and i've actually been writing down so writing down the ones i've seen and stuff i've actually gonna start like you know trying to keep track of the ones i've spotted we did an episode about butterflies with richard fox from butterfly conservation and my favorite fact about butterflies and moths is that there's no difference between the two and i love it yeah like if you look at the evolutionary history of butterflies they're kind of within moths they're like one group of yeah. moths that went oh we're gonna come out in the day and yeah and, then and of course, hang around yeah, exactly yeah and there are other moths as well that are day flying moths as well so mm. yeah it's just this one subset that we've gone that shape that behavior that's butterflies everything else moth but yeah yeah not really yeah. it's an it's artificial mad. so when people go like you know, I'm more of a moth fan. I'm like, what? what? I mean, what, you, what, why? <laughs> I'm like, just but since I've learned that fact, I'm telling everyone, all my friends. I mean, that's why you know I don't get invited to like the pub, but that's <laughs> um, because I'm too busy telling them about moth facts. <laughs> um, they're like, Ryan, no, we're here for socialising. Um, okay, so we're here to talk today about back from the brink, about this amazing, which I've been reading so much about over the last week, but. I should ask, the main question is, can you tell us what Back from the Brink is and how it started? The, the aim of Back from the Brink is to save a number of England's most endangered species from extinction, which sounds great, and it is great. It does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the part of the reason it exists is because our other kind of unique selling point is that quite a large number of the species we work on a general person in the street might uncharitably call uncharismatic. Okay. You know, you get your conservation projects working on eagles or seabirds or something like that, whereas back from the brink, we've got mosses, lichens, beetles, you know, arable plants. We, you know, we have the willow tit, we have the checkered skipper, which is a butterfly. But kind of overall, a lot of our species, are kind of underappreciated, you know, um, that you, you, you've got to have a subtle palate to appreciate them, like a fine wine. Mm. And so that's kind of the <laughs> that's other... such a poetic way to say it. <laughs> um, so, so in a way, the, the idea was that by kind of wrapping up all these species together under this umbrella of back mm. from the brink, it was to kind of shine a light in, in one go on this huge diversity of the slightly more obscure, but all, you know, incredibly threatened. The other kind of idea behind it was that back from the brink is cross-taxa. As in a lot of organisations, butterfly conservation will, would often do a project on butterflies, which makes sense. Plant Life would do a project on plants. RSPB does bird projects. The idea of Back from the Brink is that by different organisations working together, and so we are a partnership of Natural England working with the RSPB, Bat Conservation Trust, Butterfly Conservation, Bug Life, Bumblebee Conservation, Amphibian and Reptile Conservation and Plant Life wow. as the kind of core partners. The idea is that if we kind of choose a habitat or landscape to work in, for example, Dorset's Heaths, you mm. can look at that habitat kind of holistically and think, we know that the Heath tiger beetle needs bare sand patches for laying its eggs, which will also benefit smooth snakes and sand lizards. And in fact, habitat disturbance is really good for certain heathland plants and also invertebrates like the herbet mason wasp. And suddenly, by looking at it through that cross-taxa lens, you can fine-tune your management to benefit a whole suite of species rather than concentrating on one taxonomic group. So essentially by working together, we can deliver more for nature with the same kind of resource input. 
I really like that as a model because that's I think that's something we're striving towards in every kind of whether that's politically especially in the last year we've had all about coming together and working together I think is something that really resonates with a lot of people and it makes sense we're always talking about look at projects like rewilding and reintroductions and we're looking at land as an ecosystem rather than particular species I think organizations like what you've just said you're doing there is like yeah let's bring everyone together we're all in it for the same reason Let's bring it together and benefit everything there. That's, that's such an incredible thing to do. And it, and it works on so many levels as well. I mean, I just gave kind of like a conservation example, but my role, I'm, you know, I've got an RSPB email address. I have an RSPB device, but my job is to work across that entire partnership. I don't see myself as an RSPB person. I see myself as a back of the brief yeah. person. And, you know, we have people working who are employed by one organization sitting in another organization's office or you know one of their reserves and it's just that kind of resource and knowledge sharing and that also that expertise sharing that means yeah we mm. can deliver more together it's, it's, it makes such sense and it's such a great project to know that is existing as well so you said its aim is to save the was it 20 species that are on the brink of extinction yeah so um we were we're looking at 224 species in total wow 20 of them we have classified as being that, that we will save from extinction. And then there's another 92 that um, are not doing great and we're going to put on the road to recovery. And then there's another okay. 112 that uh, are species that will benefit from the work we're doing. So it's, there's kind of a, a tiered approach to where we're kind of directing our management and what will kind of benefit from that. Some of those 20 species we're saving from extinction include things like the shrill carder bee, which is um, a bumblebee, was once widespread across the south of England and is now retracted to two or three sites in England. Wow. One on the kind of Thames Gateway, one in Somerset, and possibly on Salesby Plain, but it's difficult to check because tanks. Mm. Um, <laughs> we've, we've, <laughs> we've also... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that gets in the way. Um, you can't just rock up. You can't. <laughs> no, um, there's also the uh, checkered skipper, which is um, a butterfly mm. that became extinct in England in 1976, and we've been working to reintroduce that butterfly. There is the ladybird spider, which you may or not, may not be familiar with the ladybird spider. I think I've seen some. I think I saw a. a it's probably a tweet, but I think I saw something about a ladybird spider recently. It, it could have been. Uh, that's that's all the information I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, the name is as it sounds. It's a spider, and the male of mm. that spider looks an awful like a ladybird. That that spider was thought to be extinct in Britain for nearly a century, and so part of our work is to translocate it, secure those sites, understand more about its ecology. I mean, there's three. I could go on. There's beetles. There's mosses. There's plants, and that's just the, the top twenty. There's another ninety on that list as well it's amazing it's amazing that the, the, the work it's doing is benefiting well helping those species and then it trickles down to benefit everything there so when we talk about the projects themselves this might be a hard question because like you said there's so many species here well let's look at the key 20 so i'm guessing is there 20 projects happening um, that would be a time? very sensible guess and no there aren't there are 19 <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's 19 projects happening. Yes. I know we I wish we had the time, James, to sit here and talk about every single one of those 19. But like what kind of projects? How do they work? How do they run? What what are people doing? Yeah, so so there are two key types of projects. So I mentioned earlier that kind of looking at a habitat or landscape type project. We have mm. seven projects that really kind of that's their major approach. So we've got a project looking at Dorset's Heath. We've got a project looking at arable plants. 
with or, or arable um arable everything actually i shouldn't just say yeah. plants because there's other species that benefit as well there's one looking at the brex uh, in norfolk and suffolk there's one looking at sand dunes there's one looking at ancient trees so we have those oh, kind wow. of habitat landscape projects but and we have 12 projects that have a primary focus on a single species that needs targeted management sometimes those projects have species that benefit as well but their yeah. core is looking at one special species so the ladybird spider mm. project the narrow-headed ant project the the um, narrow-headed ant oh, the project. narrow-headed ant project yeah one of my favorite i love i love i love common names of animals because they're so specific yeah. like do you know what i mean like, like like who looked at that ant and went well it's got to be a different species look how narrow it's headed well, well the thing that, that that's the that's the that's one thing that really annoys me about the narrow-headed ant is actually its head's not narrow it's really quite frustrating <laughs> no this is, okay that's the other thing with common names is that they're always bullshit because <laughs> you've got, you've got the glass snake which is not a snake nor is it made of glass i don't think i need to say that but then you've got like oh, if we just we put these ridiculous names in for people to then turn around and go well actually well, I, th- I think with the narrow-headed down what happened was the scientific name is very sensible and then i think someone tried to translate the scientific name into english and it didn't work oh, okay. too well. so so the scientific name of the narrow-headed ant is formica exceptor and that refers to the fact that the ant looks like it's got like a notch taken out the back of its head it's got like a scoop a mm. scallop at the back of the head it's got a piece okay. x-sized hence exceptor and i think someone was okay. trying to turn it into an english name rather than calling it the ant with a Notch or the ant with a bit of his head missing went up. Oh, narrow, narrow, and it's not narrow. narrow. Just call it's, it narrow. Yeah, it's it's got a scoop missing, and that ant is <laughs> well. When our project started, that ant was found on one single nature reserve in Devon. That was that was it wow. for its, and it formerly would have been found uh, Devon, Dorset. I think maybe uh, into Hampshire, possibly the Isle of Wight as well. It's, it, now one nature reserve in Devon, but we've done you know uh, through bug life lots and lots of work on understanding its needs its requirements how far it forages just kind of building up that picture of the whole kind of life cycle and ecology of that species which has culminated in translocating ants to a historical site and also another site as well so and and with all these things it's always it it takes time to see how how well things things play out but if those colonies stick, then the ant is now at three sites in England rather than one when we started. That's amazing. I don't know who has this power in the world. I don't know who it is, but I'd like to suggest a new name for the narrow-headed ant. Can we just call it the scoop ant? <laughs> the scoop ant. <laughs> I mean, it's a better name. It's more memorable. I mean, if anyone's listening that names animals, I don't know how it works. But there you go, Scoopad is what I'm throwing out there. To, to be honest, I think generally what happens with common names is someone just starts using it, and once enough people <laughs> use it, then that's its name. Like a nickname. Yeah, but, but, I mean, that's all. It's the same way that, like, um, you know, people say daddy long legs, and some people mean a spider, and some people mean a crane fly, and some other people oh, yeah. even mean a harvestman as well. Well, they're not, they're not wrong, it's just confusing. 
Um, but basically, yeah. if you start calling anything anything and enough people agree with you, then that's what it's called, isn't it? Well, there so. we go. There, there's your there's your twentieth project for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, surely we just we'd get rid of the narrow headed one and we'd just have the scoop ant. And replace it with the yeah, scoop head yeah. ant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, I interrupted you about the narrow headed ant. So we were talking about different projects. So, so the the actual conservation work varies like really significantly from project to project. So to take our Roots of Rockingham project, which is based in Northamptonshire in the former mm. Royal Hunting Forest of, North, of um, Rockingham. A lot of the work is about uh, liaising with landowners, um, uh, woodland owners, and it's about restoring light to these habitats. So historically, woodlands would have been coppiced. People would have, would have extracted yeah. wood, and then everyone kind of went, oh, plastic's great, let's leave them. And all the woods got uh, much darker. And when the woods get darker, you lose kind of dappled light that butterflies like, you lose that kind of grassy rides, you lose avenues for bats to move through the trees. And so mm. a lot of what we've been doing is, is restoring light to these woodlands, which should hopefully benefit species like the wood white butterfly, the white admiral. It should bring light in that will benefit species like the fly orchid or the Dutchman's pipe, if you're familiar with that plant. What's the Dutchman's pipe? It's, no. it's a, um, it's a plant, it's got no chlorophyll, and it's just this strange yellow thing that grows out the ground and then sort of folds over at the tip and looks a little bit like an old-fashioned pipe. So it's a, I it's, want to look it up you've got because to look I need to know what that... Like, and if listeners of the podcast, if as long as you're not driving or cycling, look it up now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I need to tell people that. It's also oh, called, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's also called the yellow bird's nest, yeah. I, and I can see why that is as well. That's a beautiful plant. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 and, and of course, the centerpiece of that project has been the reintroduction of the of the checkered skipper. Mm. But of course, somewhere else, we might be doing something completely different. Our ancients of the future project, which is looking at, at the at ancient trees and, and the kind of habitat of ancient trees, a lot of that is about working with landowners across the country to share best practice on increasing the longevity of trees, as well as working with people to try and solve the major problem that we have with ancient tree mm. habitats, which is an age gap. You have ancient trees and then you have younger trees. We don't have many middle-aged trees. That's our big problem. And the question okay. is, when your ancient tree dies off, inside that ancient tree, you might have violet click beetles or special lichens or bats roosting or etc. etc. Special hoverflies, crane flies. The problem is, 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 and that tree might have been there for a thousand years, aggregating mm. this kind of colony of species. If that tree dies off and there isn't another craggy tree with knot holes and rot holes and fungus and saprums, where do those species go? And, and the answer is they, they disappear with the tree. And so in that project, we're actually trialling techniques to kind of provide that continuity for those species. So that's been things like... Um, beetle boxes, which is where you essentially get a, a stout wooden box, which is meant to mimic the hollow trunk of a tree. And you fill that with mm. sawdust, maybe some pigeon poo, you might throw in a dead squirrel, you know, anything that might fall into the trunk of an ancient tree. And you place yeah. those near ancient trees. In the, in, and the idea is that we might see beetles and flies and other species that currently live in the hollows of ancient trees moving into these as a kind of safety net uh, just in case anything happens to that tree or maybe it's a stepping stone to to other ancient trees the other thing we're doing is getting significantly younger trees you know trees that are maybe only a 
100, 200 years old, rather than the 800, 1,000 years old of some of the trees we're working on, and and, and working to veteranise those trees, uh, giving those trees the features of ancient trees, which might involve uh, simulating uh, lightning damage. Oh. Uh, essentially, you, you hire somebody with a chainsaw to kind of create a groove down the side of a tree, mimicking natural lightning damage, then that groove might grow grow fungi or produce a saprun or start a rot hole, which then those species can move into. We've also been doing some work with universities to try like innovative fungal inoculation, sort of taking these fungi that grow in the rotting core of ancient trees and introducing them to a kind of younger healthier tree to kind of induce these features into them so until you get i guess until you get those middle-aged trees you're kind of replicating what is missing and adding that to the environment to to kind of give the wildlife a chance to thrive whilst it's not there absolutely i mean and with these ancient trees it's um how long does does you know if you look at a tree and see it's ancient how long does does it live it 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 could get struck by lightning next week it could go on for (laughs) it could go on longer than any of us alive today yeah but it's it's that uncertainty and and we're in a really strange position in the uk because this is my favorite fact about ancient sorry i keep going on tangent about projects but uh, (laughs) no it's great it's um, so insightful (laughs) this fact is mind-blowing are you ready to have your mind blown right give me a minute are you ready yeah Go on, go. England has more ancient oak trees than the rest of Europe put together. Does that wow. make any sense? Doesn't sound like it should make sense. Is that because oak is not as widespread throughout Europe? No, no. It's it's a weird it's a weird circumstance. So and the weird thing about it as well is because England has such low kind of tree cover as well. It's it's quite strange. Mm. So the, the thing to to that that makes this make sense is that an oak tree. If you grow an oak tree in a forest, they grow mm. tall and they're competing with other oaks or other trees. And so you get a tree that's a lot taller, is in constant competition, maybe it lives 300, 400 years, dies off. Trees that are grown in like an open wood pasture environment, think a deer park, grow a lot longer. They don't grow as tall, they don't need to. They grow wider and stouter, they're less likely to fall over. In those kind of environments, trees can live... 800, 1,000 years, possibly even older. And the reason we've got so many of them is because after the Norman conquest, England was basically turned over to loads of Norman lords building deer parks. And so what we didn't have in woodland cover, we had in this this wood pasture, which was really beneficial for, for growing really, really enormous ancient oak trees. That's amazing. That's really... Uh, that, yeah, that's that's my fact of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm get, you've just given me new topics for the pub. Thank you very yeah, much. No, yeah, brilliant. I can, I can help you scare away more people. Yeah. Don't worry, guys. I'm away from the butterflies now. Wait until you hear my oaky chats. Let's, <laughs> that whiskey got oaky, oaky smells to it. Well, let me tell you something. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. That's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting to, like, kind of appreciate how... Out the uh, I guess Britain's flora and fauna works with people as well. Do you know what I mean? We always forget people are part of it, but often we have shaped how it is come to be the way it is. So we talk about you know people shaping wildlife. Well, it wasn't for these ancient oaks. Would we have some of the wildlife we have today without it? So it's um 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's a really good point. I mean, that's really true of our project that's looking at, uh, at arable habitats as well. So you've probably heard that the fastest declining suite of birds in the UK is is those associated with arable habitats. It's true yeah, yeah. of plants as well. The fastest declining group of plants in the UK are, are arable plants, or what we used to call arable weeds, but that makes them sound bad because we love them. And... I mean, I have fallen in love with arable plants through this project. I mean, we all know poppies. We've all heard of cornflowers, but cornflower is is almost functionally extinct in the UK. I mean, you can get it. You can get it in a seed packet. You can scatter it on your lawn and grow it. But as an actual species that functions within an ecosystem, as in it would have grown amongst crops it would have been harvested with the crop and then re-sown accidentally the next year that doesn't happen anymore ditto corn cockle ditto pheasant's eye etc etc all these species that 100 years ago 200 years ago would have been incredibly abundant are lots of them are, are nearly extinct there's a wonderful flower called pheasant's eye it's like um it's like a poppy, but it's got like really fluffy leaves. And mm. it used to be so common that people would gather it as a weed from their fields and sell the bunches of flowers. And now it's found in nine fields in the UK. So that's, that's conceptualising, and this has happened so quickly, it's, it's really happened kind of in the last hundred years or just over a hundred years, it's that kind of mechanization of farming, those seed cleaning techniques, the introduction of herbicides. And then of course, probably that second world war drive to kind of generate more food and eliminate that kind of waste. And, and so many of these species have almost nearly vanished. It's it's mad because like you said, especially when you look at like a plant like cornflower, like I'm plant, I've been growing cornflower in the garden. Do you know what I mean? You just, it's something you see actually quite often in London parks have them um, because they're so easy to grow. They're so easy to grow. You just, like you said, just scatter. You don't even need to plant. <laughs> says, I always laugh when I read the back of the packet where it says, sow them individually. It's like, no, just throw them. Like that's all you need to do. Um, but it's mad that they're in such kind of trouble based on that. With the projects that Back for the Brink runs, do you have a, f- this is always hard. This is like asking a parent about their favourite child. Or, but do you have a favourite project? You do. I can tell by your face you do. <laughs> um, well, as long as... Um, it's, it's no, I don't have a favourite, but there's one that immediately jumped to mind as one that I'm incredibly fond of. That is very diplomatic. <laughs> very, yeah, exactly. As long as you don't frame it as favourite. Do you have a project um, that you're most that, that you're keen on? Does one spring to mind when we yeah, talk about the, them? The, the, one, the one that sprung to mind is the uh, Barbary carpet moth. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I love I love newer moths. Um, the Barbary carpet moth. That was a project focused specifically on the Barbary carpet moth, and. Um, the Barbary carpet moth, uh, as the name suggests, feeds mm. on Barbary, which is like a, 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 a kind of spiny, shrubby plant with this kind of spray of yellow flowers. That mm. plant has become incredibly rare and scattered in the UK, and the moth has become correspondingly rare and scattered. And of course, if yeah. you've only got like one bush in a hedgerow it's not going to support a colony so in fact the moth is much more restricted than the plant there was a point in history where you were legally complied to remove barbary bushes from your land 
because they were an intermediate host of a fungal rust that would also affect wheat crops. And the easy solution was remove the barberry bushes because yeah. then the rust was on, you know, would be on the wheat crops. It doesn't have anything to move on to. It dies off your crop. You know, you can now sow wheat in and not suffer any problems. So you were, you know, everyone got rid of barberry. Uh, the moth then, of course, became incredibly rare, reduced to, I think, less than 10 populations. Those populations are mostly found sort of uh, Gloucestershire, Wiltshire, kind of Dorset kind of area. So what we've been doing in Back from the Brink is, is and it's a butterfly conservation-led project, is identifying those remaining colonies of the moth, uh, surveying those colonies and just seeing how those populations are doing, but also working with local people and local landowners to get more barbary out there but mm. we're also bearing in mind that even though that wheat rust hasn't been seen in britain for over a century we don't want to be we don't want to have any chance of jeopardizing any crops in future and yeah. so we're also the reason we're working with with these people is to try and find locations a safe distance away uh, from arable habitats because the rust does not move very far it has to be within a matter of meters and so um We've been, well, I say we, our wonderful uh, project officer, Fiona, has been supplying uh, local volunteers with the seeds of barberry bushes. People have been growing, in some cases, huge numbers of, of barberry bushes, which then have been planted out in safe locations like nature reserves, uh, disused sites, uh, people's gardens, graveyards, school grounds, etc. Um, oh, cool. So even yeah. like in people's gardens, it would still like that. That could be a site that could. That could be a site, work. especially as um, I mean, w w what it is is that critical mass. Um, if you mm. if you if you happen if if you're in one of those areas in Wiltshire, Gloucestershire, Dorset, and you're the very next village to a site that has Barbary carpet, then by having a bush in your garden, you have a an opportunity to be put part of that meta population or a stepping yeah, stone yeah. across the landscape, and of course. The more people in your local village do the same thing, and if there's one in your local graveyard, whatever, it becomes more likely and more possible for that moth to spread onto them. I mean, the thing is that we're talking on a kind of time time scale of, of of years though, because a barberry bush will take a number of years to get to a size at which it might be attractive to the barbary carpet moth. So we're kind of working on a kind of like a decade long time scale here about setting mm. those stepping stones in motion. But hopefully with the work we've done over the past four years, the colonies we know and have surveyed and worked with are secure. And in fact, we'll only get more secure as time goes on because there are going to be more barbary bushes growing up and providing that, that food plant in future. And it's such a wonderful, it's such a community-led project as well, or it can be as well if it's done like that, you know, like using schools, graveyards, public grounds and gardens, like to actually, like you said, create that web of area where these bushes can be. It's, it's such a... I don't know. I love that kind of community. It's like community science, isn't it? It's getting people involved. It's and I really like that aspect of it. Absolutely, and, and I mean, people and community is has we've really tried to put that at the heart of Back from the Brink as well. So, mm -hmm. um, not only have we tried to kind of work with people on that conservation level of 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 saying, you know, come along to our moth trapping or have a go at growing some barberry bushes. We've also worked with a, um, an artist and we kind of embedded an artist with the community and local people came and they made lanterns which they decorated with cutouts of moths and then they put like a little LED thing in them and they did a parade through the village with their lanterns lit up. Amazing. You know, just, just to kind of raise awareness, you know, because yeah. 
um, I wonder how many people would have been, well, I mean, we know, people weren't conscious that they had this incredibly rare moth on the edge of their village. And, of course, mm. now they know, and now they know that barber is important to them, and that means they're more likely to grow barber bushes. Or if they know where there's a barber bush and they one day hear that someone's thinking of getting rid of it, they might say, oh, actually, did you know there's this incredibly rare... And, and, if you don't bring people along with you and you don't kind of share with people what's special and, and, and kind of engage with people, then, you know, what's the point, really? If we don't, if, yeah. if people don't care about what they're saving, then then is anything truly saved? Yeah, I think we've said it a thousand times on the show. I think it's like, but people won't save what they don't know or care about. Like, you just won't. It's, it's such a human thing. You have to know about it. I can't work to save something if i don't know it exists like so telling people about it which is so important with science communication which is why it has to be made it has to be in the media and it has to be made mainstream um and communicated in, in a great way um my next question is is i don't know if it's a bit of a weird one i don't know if you want to answer this personally or whether back to the brink kind of has a stance on this or an answer but what would you like to to see improved in the uk for wildlife and nature i personally and I think this probably mm. overlaps with Back from the Brink, I would like to see people be less obsessed with tidiness. I, I think there's still a, a, a really broad kind of cultural mindset about people trimming roadside verges or scalping their gardens, getting rid of the dandelions, you know, because dandelions are a yeah. weed and those kind of things. And during last year, uh, obviously, when you know there was lockdown, the pandemic, and a lot of that kind of activity didn't go ahead as normal. I was walking around uh, where I was living at the time in Bedfordshire, and it was amazing. The roadside verges they hadn't been mowed; they were full of dandelions, they were full of bees, they were full of butterflies. It was fantastic. And then they all got scalped, and you know I see it now: people coming out, out you know, in outside their gardens to mow the little bit of grass outside their garden, you know, next to the road. And I think, well. <laughs> Why? And there is, and it's it's a mindset of tidiness. My grandma would say it. She'd say, "Well, it's tidy." And I think, well, actually, I think we need to reframe this this idea mm. of tidiness. I'd much rather see something nature rich or uh, a great nectar source or something like that. So yeah, I think I think people need to cherish their dandelion verges, and they need to yes. encourage other people to see it the same, and they need to speak to the people who have the power to stop sending out people to strim them and, and, and encourage that change. And that would do so much good for bees, butterflies, moths, invertebrates in general. And then, of course, everything else kind of cascades on from that. I will say on that point as well, I can't remember if I've ever said this on the show, but last year I emailed, um, I, I'm quite lucky, my local MP is Jeremy Corbyn, so he's very green kind of focused. And we Our Islington borough is very well managed. Um, and I did email last year and say, can you play? We've got a lovely green in front of our house. A few neighbours over the years have scattered wildflower seeds and stuff, but they never get a chance to grow because it's always mowed. And last year I went, do you know what? It's locked down. We need the green space. Don't mow it. Can you not mow it? And I emailed Corbs um, and I got a reply from his team who forwarded it. On, well, well, actually from him who forwarded it on to the person that manages um, the green space. And they never did. And this year they've still not done it. And it, they've left it. And they only mow it once. Well, they mowed it last year in late september i think and then it's not been mowed since so that's that's quite good and i'm like please don't so we've had the the dandelions are everywhere we've had violets which someone scattered so we had violets everywhere which the bees absolutely loved um so my message to everyone i'm sure james would share this is email your mp 
that's what they're there for. Give them a shout. And because the people that don't like the ty- that like, like the nature and the nectar-rich land will email their MP and tell them to get it cut. So you need to do the same thing. Don't be afraid to email your MP. That's my little um, bit of advice. I've never given Ryan's advice on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time. That's my Email your MP. Do it. It works. Plant life. Um, because obviously Plant Life's are partnering back from the brink. Uh, they have a campaign, No Mo May, which yeah. I'd look into. And uh, I believe they also provide advice on the best kind of mowing regime for verges and places like that. Because obviously you can't not mow them forever. Um, yeah. There, there, are, there are times of year where it is most appropriate to mow them. And there are also things like mow them... And, and there's things about like taking the clippings away because and this is the other thing that I think it would be a really important thing for everyone to understand because it sounds a little bit counterintuitive. The less fertile ground is, the better it is for flowers. Yeah. Because I, I, think, I think there's the gardening mentality of, you know, digging in your manure for your wonderful flowers and roses. But in fact, in wild habitat... Yeah, add fertiliser, add fertiliser, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in wild habitats, the lower the fertility is, the better the site is for flowers because lower fertility means the grass doesn't grow as rampant and the flowers can can compete better with the grass or aren't out out competing with grass so um anyway plant life will have loads of resources about (laughs) not mowing and how to mow and how best to to manage but yeah there we go there there we go there's 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 (laughs) well james you're gonna laugh because now i've got onto the last question and it's the into the wild question that i ask everyone is (laughs) if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet just one bit um regarding the natural world what advice would you pass on everyone in the world yeah if everyone could hear it at the same time and you go this is this came from james harden morris <laughs> okay um well as i've already said about like not mowing verges and stuff like that i'll go with something a little bit more cerebral i always find it amazing to think how Every single living thing, and I think about this a lot with Back from the Brink because we're working with, you know, lichens and plants and mosses and beetles Mm. and moths and birds and mammals, is that all of these species, every single species on Earth, you know, runs on DNA. And and, and Mm. it's not as though life sprung up two, three, four times on Earth and we've got species that work in in a fundamentally different system. No, everything runs on the same sort of code, essentially, which means every single thing is descended from that kind of one genesis of life, which means every single species you see is quite literally a cousin to some huge degree. Yeah. It's, it's, it, and of course, they are different species. They're different from us. But I think recognising that, you know, there was some pathway however many million or billion years ago where your ancestor went one way and their ancestor went another and, and now we are in that position of power, I think is really important to bear in mind with every kind of thought or decision we make in relation to the natural world. Situation could have been reversed. We could have been the moss. They could have been the people in charge. That's a lovely way to think. That is a really, a really connecting way to think. Um, James, thank you so much for being on Into the World. It's been a pleasure learning more about Back to the Brink. And I mean, all the best for the rest of your projects. I can't, I can't wait to keep reading and keep learning all the updates. But thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed being part of it. 
Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. If you'd like to keep up to date with Back from the Brink, you can follow them on social media. Their social media tags are in the write-up of this show. And on that point, you can also follow Into the Wild on social media. Our links are also in the write-up of this show, along with our email address, if you've got any questions or anything you'd like to send in to myself. Into the Wild has always been and strives to always be a free and accessible show. However, it is not a free show to run. If you'd like to support myself and the show, you can do so by buying me a coffee to say thanks or visiting our merchandise store. Both these links are in the write-up below. And a quick reminder, guys, that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. So thanks for tuning in, and until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.